Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Morgan. I'm the pastor at Summit Bible Church, your church plant, and we're doing well. Uh, Thank you for hosting me and my family this morning. I'm here with my wife, Brianna, and our three children, Joelle, Reagan, and Andrew, who are participating in children's ministry this morning. Well, I want to just ask you uh, to continue to pray for Summit Bible Church. The Lord is growing us in breadth. We're growing numerically. And I just ask that you continue to pray for us that we would grow in depth, that um, we would continue to walk alongside people, that they would know Christ and grow in their relationship with him. And so that is our desire. We want to make and mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ right alongside you. So uh, it is good to be with you today. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11? And turn to verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight Might be a familiar verse to you. Before I read the passage, I want to read an excerpt from The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's illustration of the Christian life. It says, Now I saw in my dream the path that Christian walked was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. On this path, Christian ran, but not without great difficulty because of the burden on his back. He ran until he came to a hill. Atop that hill stood a cross and below was an empty tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders, fell from his back, began to tumble and continued to roll until it fell into the empty tomb and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and relieved and he said this, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. John John Bunyan beautifully illustrates here what every Christian experiences when they respond to the invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Let's read the verse together. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I wonder if you've come today burdened, troubled, feeling guilty, heavy hearted, feeling ashamed because of some sin in your life. I wonder if you've come today searching, working, striving, working really hard, struggling to find relief, but you haven't found it. This invitation's for you this morning. Hey, Christian, those of you who have responded to this invitation in your past, it's not a one and done deal. This isn't a one-time decision. Have you forgotten? Have you neglected? Have you been distracted from the precious promises of Christ in this verse for you? This invitation is for us this morning as well. Will you come to Christ today and find rest 
for your weary soul. These words are only recorded in Matthew's gospel. I know you're going through the gospel of Luke. You won't find it in Luke. Only Matthew has these words. And Matthew's aim is to prove that Jesus is the Christ. He's the king. Jesus is in the royal bloodline. He fulfills messianic prophecy. He teaches with an authority greater than that of the scribes. And he has power. He has power over sickness, storms, satanic forces, sin. He has power even over death. In fact, in verse 27, if you look just above, he declares, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus has the royal credentials and the authority to sign and send this invitation on behalf of the triune God. He is the only mediator between God and men. And so this is the king's invitation. And he gives us three commands to respond and receive it. There are three commands in verses 28 all the way to verse 30. J.C. Riles calls this passage an endless mine shaft with countless treasures. Um, I don't know what the bulletin says that I might come and, come and preach 11:28 through 30. I started with that endeavor or that goal and the Lord slowed me down. I couldn't get past 28. And so today I just want to pick up one of the pearls and examine this verse closely. Um, you can follow along with my outline. I see in this text a personal invitation to a broken people with a precious promise. So just three simple points. A personal invitation to a broken people with a precious promise. Let's look first at the personal invitation. The first thing Jesus says is come to me. Come to me. These aren't merely instructions. Go here, go there. Talk to him, talk to her. Do this, do that. It's a personal invitation. Come to me. If I were to point at Taylor here and say, Taylor, come to me. How would you expect him to respond? Well, you would expect him to get up and walk towards me, right? Let me ask you something. Why do quote-unquote Christians misunderstand what it means to come to Jesus? So many misunderstand what it means to come to Jesus. They think it's just a rational assent. It's just an intellectual decision that you make. Or, or maybe some think it's just an emotional decision. Some think it's just a a one-and-done decision. Some think it's a decision to better yourself. Can you imagine some of these responses from the crowd? When Jesus opens his arms and he says, come to me, imagine a man going, aha! It all makes sense now. Thank you, Jesus, for that TED Talk. And then he walks away. Or could you imagine another man Going, I get it, I get it. I've been sparse at the synagogue lately, Jesus. 
I need to do better at that, at church attendance. Thank you for the encouragement, and then walks away. Or could you imagine maybe a gal in the crowd? She's in tears, crying, and she's reading a prayer from a card that she got from some other person. And, you know, in her prayer, she says, Lord, I know you said to come to you, but actually I want you to come to me. Come into my heart. Make my life better. And and I'm going to go away now, live my life, and just wait for the next God encounter so I can make that decision again. Could you imagine people in the crowd hearing the command from Christ, come to me, and that's how they respond. Why do so many people today respond that way? We know what Jesus expects from us when he says, come to me. We know what he's looking for. It's a personal invitation to discipleship to know him, to follow him. It requires repentance and faith. That's the only proper response. You need to get up, turn from your old way of living, turn from the sinful life, and walk towards Christ. You need to believe in him, go to him in faith, know him, trust him, embrace him, love him, and confide in him and follow him for the rest of your life. That's what it means to come to Jesus. This is an invitation to personal discipleship. And you know what? I don't think this invitation strikes us the way that it should. Because A, familiarity breeds contempt. We've heard this a million times. And also B, there's a little bit of this in us too. I think we're entitled. We think in some way we've earned this invitation from the Lord. Of course Jesus would invite me to come to him. He's a nice guy and I'm good company. I'm a religious person. I'm nice to friends, family, neighbors. I'm a good person. No, we shouldn't expect an invitation from the king. I think we should expect what Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum received in the passage before. They received these words from Christ. Woe to you. Woe to you. I think we forget that he is a holy God and we are wretched sinners. We shouldn't expect an invitation, but rather a court order from heaven. A notice of default. You've breached the terms of his righteousness. Perhaps a certificate of, div- of divorce. We've betrayed him. Worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Perhaps even a restraining order. We've opposed him in our pride. Personally offended him by choosing our way rather than his way. We're all guilty. Sinners. Earning death. And so why would we expect from the king of glory an invitation to relationship with him? Yet, this king steps down from glory. He walks among us, wretched sinners. He looks upon us with compassion in his eyes and then stands there with arms wide open 
inviting us to come to him. This is amazing grace. This is God's divine mercy that this invitation would ever come to any of us. What grace, what mercy. And it comes to us in an invitation and it is the first command in this passage. The first command is to come to him. Go nowhere else, to nobody else, and do nothing else before coming to Christ. First and foremost, come to him. I wonder what do you do or where do you go with your troubles first? Do you immediately try to hide them? Do you excuse them, sweep them under the rug, pretending like they don't exist? Do you quickly go to a therapist, a counselor, perhaps even a pastor, a friend to confide in? Or do you try to escape them through medication, through drugs, alcohol? What do you do? Where do you go first with your trouble, with your sin? Let me ask you, counselors, disciple makers, shepherds, leaders, friends, spouses, parents, where do you take people first when they come to you with their trouble? When sin is exposed, I know a lot of us and I speak for myself, the temptation is to quickly try and fix it. Let me give you five steps right now to turn your life around. You need to stop doing this, you need to go here, you need to meet with him every day this week. And we go quickly to that fix it list, don't we? And you know, if you're drawing from biblical principles in scripture, that is good, that is wise counsel, but not first. First and foremost, take them to the hill on top with a cross and below with an empty tomb. Take them to the well that never runs dry. Give them the bread that endures to eternal life. Point them first to the only way, the only truth. Take them to the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows his sheep and lays his life down for them. Show them Christ first. Show them Christ first. What did the Apostle Paul tell the Corinthians? He said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When someone comes with their trouble, their sin, their problems, oh, I hope somewhere in that first sentence we hear the name. Let me point you to Jesus. Come to him first and foremost. Come now. Come often. Keep coming back and, and come broken. That's the second point in your outline. It's a personal invitation to a broken people. Who's this invitation for? Look back down at the text. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Oh, so this is not an invitation for the wise and the understanding in verse 26. This is not for the self-disciplined and the clever. This is not an invitation for those who think they have all their ducks in a row. 
It's not for those who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's not for those who consider themselves smart enough, strong enough, or good enough to make it on their own. Oh, this invitation is for the babies, the spiritual infants that Jesus describes in verse 25. Those who know they're helpless, they're weak, they're needy. It's for the spiritually sick. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, he came for those who are sick. It's for the poor in spirit, the humble. It's for those who find themselves desperate, who know they don't have it all together. They recognize their sinfulness and they need a savior outside of themselves. It's for the ones who find themselves on their knees or with their head low, beating their chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who this invitation is for. Those who recognize I labor and I'm heavy laden. Those two words, well, labor first, it has this idea of struggling, working really hard, toiling. You might, in your translation, have it weary. This idea of heavy laden, of course, is, is a burden. It's like a burden on your shoulders. That's why John Bunyan's illustration is perfect. We all bear this burden on our backs and walk through life, finding no rest in ourselves. You know, there are many burdens in life, many burdens. Some are circumstantial, some come from your past experiences, but let me tell you something. The heaviest burden that you carry in life is not out there, it's in here. The heaviest burden is sin. Sin is like a lead plate on your soul. It's relentless. It keeps you up at night. It nags you throughout the day, the conviction of it. It's a merciless slave driver. It always promises, it never delivers. It leaves you feeling guilty, ashamed, empty, angsty, doubtful, restless. David describes the feeling in Psalm 32. He says, my bones wasted away. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up. Do you know this feeling? The feeling caused by your own sinfulness. Others of you have suppressed this truth. You've seared your conscience. You're living in an alternative reality, pretending like there isn't a God, that you're not accountable for your sinful actions or behaviors, pretending like there is no real burden on your back. You're living in Disneyland. I recently went to Disneyland, and fun fact, Walt Disney, you probably know this, but he designed the park in such a way that when you walk into the park, you can at no moment in time see anything outside of it. Do you know this? So wherever you're at in Disneyland, you can't see a tall building in Anaheim outside of the park. Why? Because he wanted you to have the feeling that you're in an alternative reality, that you stepped into a different world. There's no recognition of anything out there. All you need to worry about is enjoying what's in here. It's strategic. You know, the world does the same to you 
It tries to suspend your reality, tries to make you think there's no God, there's no consequences for sin, I can enjoy this life, I can live however I want. But when you die and you stand before holy God, let me assure you that burden, you will be painfully aware of it. It will sink you like a lead plate. You'll know, I'm a sinner and I deserve hell. You can't escape it. You can't escape the heavy, heavy, heavy burden of sin. You know, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of tying up heavy burdens in Matthew 23. He says they tie up heavy burdens and they place them on people's shoulders. You know what's worse than a guilty conscience? A guilty and oppressed conscience. Add the weight of legalism to your sin. Add the weight of works-based religion and it will crush you. It's like, you know, not only carry this unbearable weight on your shoulders, but I want you to get on the treadmill and try to run with it. You're always running, you're always working, but you're getting nowhere. That's the reality of works-based religion. That's the reality of the legalistic system that the Jews had built during this time. It doesn't work and it gets, makes the burden heavier, heavier, and heavier. There's only one place that you can go. Only one place you can go to find relief. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I, I alone will give you rest. Leads us to point number three. We have a personal invitation to a broken people with a precious, precious promise. He says, I will give you rest. You can translate it, I will rejuvenate you. I will refresh you. There's nothing of greater value in all of life than this, friends. There's nothing of greater value in all of life than this. No money can buy it. No searching can find it. No working can earn it. No relationship compares to it. Come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and find rest for your soul. Notice it's rest for your soul, not rest for your body. Jesus clarifies that in verse 29. Rest for your soul. We know coming to Jesus doesn't mean a quote-unquote easier, more comfortable life. It doesn't always save you from the outside trouble. In fact, Jesus promises persecution for his apostles in the chapter before. He doesn't promise freedom from physical handicap, doesn't promise healing from physical sickness. He, he doesn't even promise to you to escape the tortures of, of death. The external shell of a man will decay and it will die. But the soul, see, the soul, the inner man, what makes you you, the life within, that can find rest and refreshment no matter how bad life gets. That can always and consistently be at rest. 
Isn't that what you want? What does a refreshed soul look like? What are you talking about? My soul can be refreshed. What does that look like? A couple of points for you to jot down. First, a clear conscience. You can have a clear conscience. Oh man, the relief that comes with a clear conscience. Oh my goodness, to know that you're washed, to know that you're forgiven, to know that your sins won't be counted against you, you're sprinkled clean by the pure water and blood of Jesus Christ, Psalm 103. Your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. There's therefore now no condemnation for you. As Seth read, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You have a clear conscience about that. Oh, and that gives your soul rest. Assurance. Assurance. No more questioning. No more doubting. No more uncertainty. But just as John says in his epistle, he says, you can know that you have eternal life. You can know. Coming to Jesus, finding that rest will give you assurance of your salvation today. How about peace? An inner peace with God and others that surpasses all understanding. The rested soul finds peace. How about joy? True joy. The joy that goes deeper than a smile. The joy that is greater than your unfortunate circumstances. In his presence there is fullness of joy. Psalm 16. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Psalm 63. David wrote these things when he was escaping for his life. When he was on the run. Circumstances were bad but he finds joy. Because guess what? His soul is at rest in the Lord. That's what you can have. If you come to Christ joy in your heart you can have hope a refreshed soul has hope a certain future a living hope first peter 1 3 says an eternal hope a sure hope because the one who promises is faithful titus 1 2 you can be satisfied Oh, you're searching for happiness in this world. You're, you're temporarily distracted by those pleasures offered to you by the world. They promise they don't deliver. They don't satisfy you. The Lord does. The Lord can satisfy that hungry soul. Uh, the psalmist writes, Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. In his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The theme of the woman's retreat. Psalm 34. There is great satisfaction for your soul when you come to Christ. Oh, and these are just a few, friend. A few of the benefits to your soul. The rest that you find when you come to him. These are things the world cannot give you. And get this, these are things the world cannot take away. They cannot take this away. Oh, sure, you can fire a Christian. You can disown a Christian. You can make fun of a Christian. You can beat a Christian. You can even kill a Christian. You could take away all freedoms from a Christian, but you can't touch his soul. 
Only Christ can touch the soul. And the touch of Christ gives rest. Rest to the laboring and the heavy laden. Precious, precious promise. He says, come to me. Don't go here, don't go there, don't do this, don't do that. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. How? How? How can Jesus give that that the rest of the world can't? How can Jesus truly fix the inner turmoil in my soul? The sin that haunts me, that is heavy upon me. How can he give me a clear conscience and forgive me of this heavy weight of sin? Oh, surely I've sinned far past God's grace and mercy. That's not true. Let me take you to the hill that has a cross on top and an empty tomb below. How can Jesus give rest to our weary souls? Well, Jesus, listen to this, truly God and truly man, he came to earth. He lived the perfect life you and I cannot live. He alone is truly righteous, the righteous one. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He willingly suffered crucifixion at the hands of men, even though he was completely innocent. Why? Not to be a spectacle of human suffering, but to die for our sins. On that cross, he was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Effectively, he took our burden of sin off our backs and he bore it himself, placing the penalty in full, paying for the penalty in full by dying on that cross. And in his last breath, he said, it is finished, paid for, forgiven. The righteous one died so that the many may be accounted as righteous. And his death isn't the end of the story. He conquered death. Three days later, risen from the grave. He is risen, he's risen indeed. That grave is empty, proving to those who believe in him that sin has been paid for, death has been defeated, our Savior is alive, and, and we will be resurrected with him in glory one day. This is how Jesus, the wonderful Savior, can call to us today and say, come to me. You can't go anywhere else with this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I alone will give you rest. So, have you come today burdened? Are you troubled within? Feeling guilty? Heavy hearted? Ashamed? Because of your sin? Come to him. Come to him. Today. Don't wait. Come now. Come often. Come broken. Have you been searching? Have you been working, striving on your own? Trying to figure out, your, figure out yourself and you're struggling to find relief. Come to him. 
Go nowhere else today. Christian, don't neglect, don't forget these promises or this precious promise here. Even for you, sometimes we fall in, back into sin habits. Sometimes we occur that, that guilt again. We almost pick up that burden ourselves and start to walk with it a little bit and we forget what Jesus did and what he offers to us even today. Come to him. Lay that burden down at his feet. Find forgiveness. Find that rest in your soul that you've neglected, that you've wandered away from. Spurgeon preached this passage directed to non-Christians and it, it really is an invitation to you today if you don't know Christ to come to him to be forgiven and to, to know Christ to have a relationship with him and then he starts preaching this passage to Christians it's interesting to read both sermons and he directs it as Christians because he finds that Christians most often neglect this simple command Christian, don't forget that when you find yourself in trouble, when you stumble into sin, and when you've gone back to that sin habit, that you need to go back to Christ. You need to come to him once, often, again, and always. Listen to what Spurgeon writes here. He says, oh, for the grace to be always coming to Jesus, to be constantly inviting others to do the same. It's always free, yet we're always bearing his yoke, always having the rest once given, yet we're always finding more. This is the experience of those who come to Jesus always and for everything. Blessed heritage, and it is ours. I invite you today to come to him. Come to him and find rest for your soul. Now as Christians stood looking and weeping, Behold, three angels came to him and greeted him, saying, Peace be with you. The first said, Your sins are forgiven. The second one stripped him of his filthy rags and clothed him with pure garments. The third put a mark on his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal to read as he journeyed and give at the celestial city when he arrived. And the angels left him. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and he sang, how far did I come burdened with sin? I could not ease the grief that I was in until I came here, oh what a place is this? Here begins my bliss, here the burden falls from my back, here the strings that bound it crack, blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Do you know him? Are you walking with him? Let me pray. Father, thank you for offering your son, Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, to pay the penalty we deserved to die in our place. What, what amazing grace, incredible mercy. And then to offer to sinners like us, wretched sinners like us, rest for our souls. What a precious promise. This is such a sweet invitation, Lord, and, and we don't deserve it. 
but we're grateful. And I just ask that you give us the strength to respond. Pray that you'd open the eyes of the blind this morning. That even those who don't know Christ, maybe they've sit in these, these pews for years and they haven't truly responded to the invitation from Jesus in, in repentance and faith. I pray that they would come, come today and find rest for their souls, find their burdens relieved. Lord, I pray that these precious truths would not wander far from us as Christians, that rather we would not wander far from them, that we would walk closely with Christ in this life, never going back to that, those old habits of picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps, of trying to work out our problems ourselves, that we would come to Christ first and foremost and constantly and regularly finding that rest that we need for our souls. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.